Thank you for joining us for today's message. We believe God is going to do great things in your life. If God has impacted you through this ministry, partner with us in reaching others. Go to summitsa.com and give an amount that works best for you. Now enjoy the message and have a blessed day. You know, during the Christmas season, you see a lot of nativity scenes. And the faces of all those characters in that nativity scene always look peaceful. I mean, Mary and Joseph look happy. The shepherds look peaceful. The wise men look real calm. Even baby Jesus doesn't get colic or anything. There's a lot of fantasy in some of this stuff, and I want to look at it. And all the songs we sing have a real serene feeling. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. There's only a couple of hundred people there. How still we see thee lie. Or all is calm, all is bright. Oh, and I love this one. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. Are you kidding me? Jesus came as a human. He came through a womb. And you can bet that little sucker cried. And they had to change his diaper. Get real. But a lot of people hear this and they say, Rick, it's so easy to kind of romanticize life back then. But I live in the real world. You know, I live in a world where there's pressure, mortgages, marriage problems, kid problems, cancer problems, money problems. And there's big regrets about yesterday and some big fear about tomorrow. You know, all is calm, all is bright. And they say, well, yeah, maybe in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, but not in my world. And I think when that happens, we cut ourselves off from the real peace Jesus comes to bring from this real story. And there's one character we don't know very much about or we don't hear much about, particularly Protestants, and it's Mary. There's a book recently called The Real Mary, written by a New Testament scholar named Scott McKnight. And I'm going to share a couple of thoughts I got from that book. We first run into Mary in Luke chapter 1. An angel appears to Mary, tells her she's found favor with God. Then Mary gives a response, verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at the angel's words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. Now Mary, you know, she lives in Nazareth, which is a truck stop. It's a place where fugitives and criminals live. It's not a place you'd want to go to. It's a place where people would flee to. And even one of the disciples says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So it's a nowhere place. And this is a nowhere little girl. She's not the daughter of the high priest. She didn't go to Jerusalem to one of the Bible schools. She's just a little barefoot teenager, a nowhere girl in a nowhere place at a nowhere moment in time. So get into the story and make it real. And so she's She's just ordinary, and she's not used to being singled out, and this big, gargantuous angel shows up and makes this statement. Well, take a guess at what percentage of women in the first century Israel were named Mary. Well, according to this author, 50%, half of all the women. Now, that could be confusing when families called their daughter home, when half of them are all got the same name. In Hebrew, she would have been known as Miriam after Moses' sister. So it was a common name. Now, my point is, there's nothing special that we can see about this girl. Nothing that would have singled her out. But an angel shows up and says, you found favor in God. And Mary is troubled, greatly troubled, it says. But that's not the end of her troubles. The angel says, Mary, you're going to become pregnant by a miraculous intervention, and you're going to give birth to a son. 
Now, there's a lot Mary doesn't understand about what this angel is saying, but this much she does know. She's not married. She's going to get pregnant, and she knows she's going to have to tell Joseph to whom she is engaged to be married. So imagine that happening in real life today. She's going to have to tell Joseph she hadn't been unfaithful, and he, above all, knows he's not the father. And she's going to have to say she was visited by an angel who told her God's going to do a miracle in her body. What are the odds any man then or now is going to believe that? Give me a break. This is a massive thing. And she knew what happened to an adulteress in her day. She'd be taken to a public place. Her clothes would be stripped off of her. Her hair would be taken down. She'd be stripped of her jewelry. And she'd be left to public disgrace in a public place where people passed by and could mock her. She knew by saying yes to God it would cost her her marriage, possibly her life. She knew the whole town she lived in would know she's pregnant and not married. Now, Nazareth only had a couple of hundred people in it. Anybody ever heard about small town gossip? Yeah. And even if Joseph believed her, the town wasn't going to believe her. She would lose her reputation. And for the most part, that's exactly what happened. Amazing. And stories lingered for a long time about this unwed teenage girl. Now, when Jesus begins his ministry in his hometown, he gives his first sermon in a synagogue. And Mary would certainly have been there. And it doesn't go real well. And people don't applaud. Kind of like Saturday night at Summit. Anyway, <laughs> this is the response of the crowd. Mark 6, verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of Mary? And they were offended at him. Now, in that day and culture, men were always identified by the son of the father. They would be called the son of a father. They would have said, Jesus, the son of Joseph, but they don't. They call him the son of Mary. And it's possibly a reference to the fact that in the hometown, they remembered his mother was an unwed pregnant girl. And they're taunting the fact Jesus possibly was an illegitimate child. And that same thing may be going on in John chapter 8. A group of Israelites say about Jesus, are we right in saying you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? <clears throat> you find out real quick, everybody didn't like Jesus. Yeah, really. Uh, I think sometimes we sterilize this beautiful Christmas picture. And uh, they said, are we right in saying you're a Samaritan? You're a demon-possessed? Now, in that day, this is a very deep racial slur. Samaritans were half-breeds. That is, this is a time when ethnic purity and origins were real important. And so they were half-Jewish and half-not. And again, it's a possible slur against Jesus and his mom, Mary, saying, what kind of a woman was she, they imply. And I think it's kind of interesting when Jesus grows up and begins his ministry, he becomes known as a champion. One who would welcome women with shady reputations. Women with dubious past would come to him, bathe his feet with their tears, and he would welcome them. He would protect one caught in adultery. Just maybe, just maybe in his humanity, he remembered what people would say about his own mother. When the angel spoke, there was a lot Mary didn't understand. She didn't know what's going to happen to her reputation, but she did know that all of her dreams of a normal, respectable, quiet life in a small town like Nazareth are going to be gone in an instant. And here's her amazing response to that. 
Verse 38, Luke 1. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. So this is a courageous offering of herself to God. It's a sacrifice of her agenda, her dreams, her life, and who she is. It's an unbelievable prayer. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have spoken. And that response to God is the foundation of whatever peace Mary would know the rest of her life. Whatever peace she would know is not going to become because her life was quiet, affluent, or easy, or pleasant, or respectable. It would come from none of those things. Who am I, she says? I'm the Lord's servant. What do I choose? May it be to me according to your word. Your will be done. Now, can you see that before Jesus ever suffered for Mary, Mary suffered for Jesus? She was an amazing woman. And so God begins to communicate what he's up to in this baby about who this person really is. <laughs> and people still have big arguments on who Jesus is. Every Christmas on the TV, there'll be channels that say, who was the real Jesus? Scholars still are trying to figure out who he was. Last year, I saw an email on several different ethnic cults who claimed Jesus must have been one of them. You could make the argument Jesus was a Californian because he never cut his hair. He walked around barefoot. He started a new religion, kind of what all Californians do. There was an equally good argument Jesus was a woman. He had to feed a crowd at a moment's notice when there was no food. He kept trying to get the message across to a group of men who didn't get it. And even when he was dead, he had to get back up because there was still a lot of work to be done. And on and on it goes. So everybody is still arguing about who is this guy? What's he up to? Now, in the birth narratives, God communicates who Jesus is. 2,000 years ago, it would have been a lot clearer and explosive, scandalous, unthinkable. 2,000 years our way, it's kind of not so clear to us. So let me give you a little historical context. Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Herod was king over Palestine. That's the little area Jesus lived. But over Herod, ruler of everything, head of the Roman Empire, was Caesar Augustus. So here's what's going on in Caesar's life. When Caesar Augustus was a young man, he was adopted by Julius Caesar. And when Julius Caesar died, there was a comet that year, and people swore to the Roman Senate that in the comet they saw Julius Caesar ascending up to heaven. So he was officially declared God. That's the beginning of emperor worship. Now Caesar Augustus, because he's been Julius Caesar's adopted son, thus became known as Son of God. He became ruler over Rome and the extended Roman Empire. He inaugurated what would become known as the Pax Romana, or Peace of Rome. And Caesar Augustus brought the peace of Rome to all the known world, and he was proclaimed Savior of Rome. Now, the announcement of his, of his reign was officially called the Gospel, or Good News. This was the Gospel of Rome. Caesar Augustus, Son of God, has become Savior of his people and brought peace to earth. Now, I hope every long-term believer in this room knows that that ought to sound fairly remotely familiar to you. Caesar Augustus, son of God, has become savior of his people and brought peace to earth. That's loaded language. 
you go around using that kind of language about somebody other than Caesar Augustus, and your life is in jeopardy. So an angel says to Mary in verse 35 of Luke 1, so the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. Not just a son, the Son of God. And then an angel appears to the shepherd and says to them in Luke 2, verse 10, don't be afraid, for I bring you gospel, good news. And by the way, gospel is a religious word today. It was never a religious word. It was a secular word. It just meant good news, the gospel. Dillard's is having a $1 sale on everything today. That's the gospel. Gas today at Valero, right up here at 281 and Marshall Road is a buck a gallon, and everybody in here would leave. Good news. No, it's bad news for me, but it's good news. And so they proclaim, for I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people, not just Israel, not just Rome. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. They're calling him everything they call Caesar Augustus. And then the angels say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace on those to whom his favor rests. So here is the good news, the gospel. The Son of God, the Savior, has been born to bring peace on earth, and it ain't Caesar, it's Jesus. And that is the message proclaimed to Mary. This whole deal is controversial. A virgin birth and pregnancy Son of God, Savior of the world, peace on earth. Meanwhile, we got this loser in the political structure, Caesar Augustus. This is everything against the culture, political climate of the day. And then it says, all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said, and all who heard it but Mary. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So everybody was amazed, but one person went a bit further. One person treasured and pondered, and the Bible says that was Mary. And treasuring and pondering were standard words in Judaism. They were fairly technical to describe what happens when somebody, particularly prophets, would figure out what God was up to in the world and then call the people to respond to action. So treasuring and pondering, uh, that's what prophets did. So it required a formidable intellect, enormous spiritual sensitivity, and then the raw guts to go public, this is what God is doing, and then call people to respond. Well, Luke says he researched what he's writing about Jesus, and it's based on eyewitness accounts. So who do you think the eyewitnesses are that Luke went back to to get the story of Jesus' birth? Who was the one who first started to discern, to shape, and tell the story about what God was up to in this baby Jesus? Who was the one who pondered and treasured the way prophets did? Oh, it's not a deep theologian in the temple. It's this little, illiterate, peasant, impoverished, obscure Jewish peasant girl, Mary. And everybody's amazed, but Mary, the first one who figured out what God was up to in sending a new king, the king of kings, king over Herod, king over Caesar Augusta. Now, as the Torah demanded, Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. It had to be kind of confusing to her, though. When you brought a baby to the temple to dedicate him, you'd bring a lamb, a sacrifice for the firstborn. That was a moment of great joy and pride in the life of all parents. 
But Mary and Joseph can't bring a lamb because they're way below the poverty line. So they bring two pigeons, which was allowed in the Mosaic law. But nobody was proud of it. And add to that, Mary's trying to figure out good news, Savior of the world, Son of God, peace on earth, and I'm bringing two pigeons? What's going on? So they dedicate Jesus, and then this old man named Simeon takes the baby from Mary, and the Bible says he's a godly, good, and devout man. He's highly regarded, and he prays. He lifts the baby up from Mary, and he prays to God. This is in Luke 2, verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may dismiss your servant in peace. He's saying, this is what I've waited for my whole life. Now I can die. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. Notice the inclusive language, not just Israel. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now, if you're Jewish, nobody thought about Messiah doing anything to help Gentiles, which is why the church is still sectarian, racially divided. It's terrible. And so Jesus is going to break all this up. And he says, and for the glory of your people Israel. Now, here's a question. Did anybody ever say anything like that over you when you were born? You know, I've got two little girls. They're grown now. But when they were little girls and Cindy and I had them, somebody might say they thought they were cute. But we never had anybody say, okay, I can die now. I've seen this child of yours. <laughs> and you imagine what this is what Simeon says holding the baby Jesus. And then old Simeon turns and speaks, not to Joseph, very uncultural, but to Mary. This is Luke 2, verse 34. This child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. And a sword will pierce your own soul, Mary. And then he walks away. I mean, this is a baby dedication. What are you supposed to think? Good news, son of God, savior, peace on earth, king of kings. And then she's told... His glory is going to come through sorrow and suffering. He will be misunderstood. He will be opposed. There will be a sword. That means there will be a death. Great pain for Mary. And I wonder, can you imagine the conversations Mary must have had with Jesus regarding his birth? I mean, how do you explain it? Sometimes we think about Jesus as though he didn't really become human, but Scripture says he did. And maybe she said, you know, son, old Caesar's not the real king. Not over Rome, not over anything. Herod, he's not the real king in Jerusalem. They are not the Savior who's going to bring peace on this earth into the world. Son, that's you. But it's a dangerous thing to talk about this and defy a king. I don't really understand it yet, son. There's a lot you're going to have to figure out. I just don't know. I just know that I said to God a long time ago, may it be to me as you have said. I said to God a long time ago, not my will, yours be done. So, son, when you don't know what to pray, and if you're ever troubled, you can always pray that. Just remember that, and I'll come back to it. Jesus is now 12. They go to Jerusalem to the temple for the Passover, and they're in a caravan on their way home, and they discover, where's Jesus? He's, he's, anybody ever lose a kid? We lost one at Disney World for about five minutes one time. And let me tell you, it's not a good thing when mom and dad have an argument to figure out who's responsible for this loss. So you can imagine this one. You what? You lost Jesus? 
the Son of God? What are you thinking? Boy, are you in big trouble. So they turn around and go back to Jerusalem, which takes three days. I mean, Christians read the Bible in church, and it's just so sterile. They, I mean, somebody was looking for a, to beat somebody up. What? Now we got to go three days back to Jerusalem to get this kid. And they go find him in a temple. He's sitting among all the rabbis, listening, asking questions. And it says everybody who heard him talk was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And that's the standard language you use to speak about a great rabbi. People knew when Messiah came, among other things, he would be a figure of great wisdom. He would know. And this is Jesus. Then his mother said to him, and again in the culture, this would be absolutely unthinkable. It was always the father speaking to the son. But here, it's Mary. So in Luke 2, verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been screaming at each other for hours. Why were you searching for me, he said. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. That's for all the young people in here. And he was obedient unto his parents. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And now the relationship starts to change. And now his identity, his mission, his calling all change. He starts to assert himself, his independence. And Mary's not going to be able to relate to him in quite the same way as she did. Now she's going to have to let go of him. And she's thinking, well... Maybe this is the sword Simeon talked about. And at the end of the temple story, Luke says it a second time. Luke 2, verse 51. But Mary treasured all these things in her heart. God, what are you doing? Well, Jesus grows up. Somewhere along the line, Joseph dies. Mary's left a widow. She has to raise a family, Jesus and his brothers and sisters. And by the way, the way it's traditionally been is that Catholics deify Mary, Protestants just ignore her. But look at the balance here. She's a, she's a virgin. She's a godly, good, obscure little peasant girl. She is taking on a big risk and a big challenge. She deserves a lot of credit. But a lot of people think Mary never had any other kids. She had a virgin birth, meaning she did not have a sexual relationship with Joseph until Jesus was born to protect his deity. Then she had lots of kids. It's kind of hard for Jesus to have brothers and sisters if mama didn't have babies. Now, some of you come from a Catholic background, and in some cases that's been taught totally bogus. Uh, scripture is quite clear on this, that he had a lot of brothers and sisters. So I think the hardest part, it's difficult for Mary to understand kind of what's going on. It doesn't look like son of God, savior, and bringing peace. It's not what anybody expected. It doesn't look like what they thought Messiah was supposed to look like. Every time Jesus showed up, everybody religious got upset, mad, and disappointed. I wonder if he showed up today in America in churches, if they'd throw him out. I guarantee if his own family and the religious institution said this can't be Messiah, he wouldn't act like this. He's always with bad people. He's always doing non-religious things. And yet today, if you dare to do that... There are different groups and different religious groups that will segregate by political party, by race, by color, by nationality, or by what you don't do. And I imagine Jesus would come and blow us all out of here. Absolutely he would. 
you, you, you know, that's what happens when you don't read your Bible. Then you just listen to what some bubblehead said, and you didn't check it out. So I'm not suggesting I'm a bubblehead, but I am suggesting you check it out, right? So he just doesn't look like they thought he would. He didn't look like Assembly of God or Lutheran or Episcopal or Catholic. And even his own family says, we don't get it. We don't understand you. And so Messiah is supposed to purge Israel of sinners, yet Jesus is hanging out with them. Jesus is eating with them. He's welcoming them into his presence and community, and they're thinking it's not supposed to look this way. They think Messiah is supposed to overthrow Gentile rulers and Romans and get rid of them. But Jesus is only offending Israel's rulers and the religious hierarchy. They're the ones he's in trouble with. Gentiles, pagans, they keep coming to him for help. He keeps giving it to them. It is the strangest ministry. And how does it affect his own family? Mark 3, verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. His family thinks he's lost his mind. John 7, verse 5, for Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. Now think about the hurt there. He's in a home. He's teaching in Mark 3. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. They've heard all about this weird ministry. Standing outside, they send somebody in to call him out. A crowd is sitting around him, and they told him, Hey, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, These are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, and my mother. And Mary's listening to this at the door. What does she think? How does she understand this? Maybe this is the sword. But she goes back home, she watches, she prays, she wonders, she treasures. Now, we don't hear about Mary again in the ministry of Jesus until the very end. Jesus is betrayed. He's facing death. He's in the garden. He's agonizing before God the Father. God the Father is asking him to suffer. It's a cross in front of him. And it's anguish you and I cannot imagine. Jesus prays and he asks to be spared from having to go through this suffering. The humanity of Jesus said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I'd sure like not to have to do this. But he goes on and says what he remembers from his mother. But not my will, yours be done. I am the Lord's servant. May it be unto me as you have spoken. And the prayer that Mary prayed when his life began is the prayer the son prays when his life ends. God's chosen the exact right woman. And when Jesus is arrested, tried, convicted, beaten, and hung on a cross, in John 19, it says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. In Roman execution, sometimes they would allow family members to be very close to the cross. Another myth by looking in religious books and paintings is that the cross is 30 feet high. First of all, there's no way to get them up there and get them down. That's just dumb. It's not even practical. How are they going to spit on you at 30 feet? How are they going to slap you? No, no. All they do, Romans, would put your feet maybe six inches off the ground and hang you. Now people could spit. You're naked. They could slap you. They could mock you. And the, par the parents or family members are standing very near the crawl, the cross. I'm told by others we've had a couple of family members in here who have lost a child. And they said there's no pain in the world quite like the pain of a parent watching the death of their child. 
It just goes against nature. It's just wrong. And here's Mary. The disciples have run away, most of his followers. And here's Mary near the cross. And she thinks back to when he was a baby. It's a strange thing, but all of us who are parents, particularly us that have grown children, when we watch that child get big, we still see them as that little kid. I still do. Uh, when my youngest daughter was born, the last one, her first words were dee da dee da dee da She just run around the house in a diaper, dee da dee da dee da So I've been calling her Dida for 33 years. And although she's a grown woman, both of my girls are, and one married with children, forever in my life and on my deathbed, it'll be Dida. It, you look at them like the little kid they were. Uh, the Yarrington's daughter, uh, Brooke, was here last night with her new baby. And I remember when Brooke was in diapers, as a toddler, she got on the side of her mama's car, and her mama didn't see it in the driveway, fell off, hit her head on the concrete, knocked her out. And so I've got Mrs. Yarrington and the kids. I got my wife and my daughters, this is years ago, screaming. I mean screaming. You're not supposed to panic. And I remember picking Brooke up off the driveway like this, and I said, call Bob. Call Bob, right? He's a doctor. Call Bob. <clears throat> and I ran, put that little baby into the house on the couch, and I did the old medical checking, the, the eyes, check them, check the pulse, check for any breathing, did all that. Bob says, good, you're hired. You can be an assistant. And she was, she was fine. And I looked at her last night holding that baby, and I thought, for the rest of your life, Brookie, you're Brookie to me, and you're the Brookie I picked up off the driveway, scaring your mama to death, and ran over and put you in my house. We, we, Anybody like me relate to that? Got grown kids? You still see them? Oh, maybe they're big and tough and rebellious, but still that little kid. Especially mamas, I'm sure do, because you birthed that little sucker, right? So she sees this big man on the cross and remembers that little baby, and she remembers Simeon saying, and a sword will pierce your heart, Mary. And now she knows. Verse 26, John 19. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, Standing nearby, he said to her, Dear woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that day, the disciple took her in his home. And that's what an oldest son did in that day. And Jesus dying on a cross, his last act is taking care of his mom, Mary. And we see Mary one more time, the resurrection. <clears throat> and she watched her son die. Now the resurrection has begun. She knows a little bit more. Then he's raised from the dead. He told her, did you not know I must be in my father's house? And this new community, the church, gets launched, which, by the way, 2,000 years later is still going just fine, thank you, and you and I get to be part of it. And we're told by Luke in Acts 1, verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, the disciples along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. So now his brothers are believers as well, and now they also know. Peace on earth, peace wins, Jesus wins. Nothing, not Caesar, not Herod, not problems, not scandal, not gossip, not death itself can stop this peace, which all began for Mary with that very dangerous prayer. Thanks for joining us today, and may God richly bless you. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.